So I'm going to do a little little brief thing this morning. I have um, Robin makes me make titles for these little presentations, so because um, she puts it up on the on the web. So I've got a title for this one. It's the physical, emotional, ethical, mystical logic of ritual, which is probably a more impressive title than the few things I have to share, but I really like the title. Um, so I'm, I'm working on a book based on the material from the clobber text class that I've done for many of the mama and papa bears. I, uh, I don't need to rehearse uh, that material here because this is not a contested in our issue in our church, thank the Lord. But uh, my research for the book has led to a deep dive into the third book of the Hebrew Bible, First book is Genesis, second is Exodus, and the third is Leviticus. And Leviticus is the least accessible, the most baffling book to modern people in all of the, all of the Bible. It opens with, uh, for example, um, detailed instructions for seven chapters on the ritual sacrifices used in the first temple, in the tabernacle or the temple. But it would have been super important to Jesus and the writers of the New Testament who were all Jewish for a long time. Uh, the first book of the Hebrew Bible introduced to children was the book of Leviticus. Can you believe it? Um, and I realized recently that I had never really studied Leviticus very deeply. We, uh, Emily and I did a did a series on Leviticus, um, maybe four four years ago or so, but I uh, haven't really done a, a significant study of Leviticus. And actually just reading it just kind of annoyed me. It was so so different, so odd. Um, so I'm, I'm actually, I'm trying to make up for that. But I'm, I'm writing out the book of Leviticus by hand. That's a trip. Uh, it's like, uh, like elementary school all over again, but I haven't done anything wrong. So, but it's, it's fun to write out like, Sections of scripture by hand is kind of oddly meditative. And I'm reading the best Jewish commentaries on uh, Leviticus. And I'm immersing myself through this in the strange logic of ancient ritual. So the ancients used ritual to deal with the deep psychological, physical, and spiritual needs of human beings. And also the rituals would enact in, in like a physical form uh, communities' sacred values, what their ethics, what was most important to them. So what what values do the rituals of Leviticus convey? Um, well, they convey some things you might not notice just by reading the rituals themselves. Uh, for example, that humans, not demons, are the cause of harm in the world, uh, often unintentionally. Um, the, the, a lot of the dumb stuff we do is unintentional, and that is reflected in the sacrificial system of Leviticus, which is kind of a comfort. Um, it conveys that God wants to be our neighbor who lives nearby us, and, and we make a home for God by making a home for each other. Um, the rituals of Leviticus uh, that are so foreign to us convey the um, the value that God has preferences like we do, and it's good to respect those preferences. Uh, uh, there's, there's an idea that we, can, we have the power as human beings to drive God out of his house by the way we treat each other, um, that the highest ethic 
is to love your neighbor as yourself and love the stranger or the foreigner in the land in your midst as yourself. That's from Leviticus chapter 19. It's really the heart of the ethic of the Hebrew Bible and the Newer Testament. But many ancient rituals are like a foreign language to us. It, it can take uh, painstaking work to learn the language, and only that, then does the internal logic, the symbolic, mystical logic, and the psychological genius and the beauty of the ritual present itself. So very small example. Um, I'm, I'm doing all this just to set up because I want to comment on some of the rituals that we've stumbled into in Zoom church. So, But a small example of... Um, of how uh, strange-seeming rituals can convey something quite modern in sensibility is um, the practice of offering animal sacrifices called burnt offerings. So this is in Leviticus chapter 1. It gives instructions for the, the animal sacrifices, for the burnt offering. So the head of a household would bring a bull or a sheep or a goat to the temple courts uh, dispatch it, drain the blood, which the priests would would um, catch, would gather, and they would throw it against the altar, not against the worshiper, but against the altar, while the Israelite would cut up the parts and the portions not suitable for food would be burned on the altar by the priests. So it was like a, all like a group communal effort, the, the worshiper, the like ordinary Israelite coming and the priests assisting as the Israelite makes the offering. And all of it, if you just read it, um, it all seems very gross to modern people who only get their meat from Kroger's or Costco, where the brutal agribusiness practices are hidden from view, right? And it's all sanitized. But this ancient ritual actually conveyed the sacred value of living creatures. It was a way of placing significant limits on meat eating. So originally, one could only eat meat that was sacrificed in this ritual way. So people weren't having meat five nights a week. They weren't storing it in their freezer or refrigerators. They weren't picking up a burger in a drive-thru. I suppose all this is not really great encouragement for, <laughs> for um, this weekend and all the barbecues going on. <laughs> But eating meat under this system was always a very special occasion. It was like a sacred act. The only quadrupeds, the only four-legged um, four animals that were allowed for food were three species, cattle, sheep, and goats. All the other four-legged creatures were off limits for food. The animal had to be dispatched painlessly, much more humanely than in our modern slaughterhouses. Um, the modern treatment of animals used for meat, you know, force feeding grain uh, to, to cattle, uh, miserable living conditions with no room to move, all of that are grotesque and brutal and would be shocking to the priest who composed the book of Leviticus. The blood had to be treated as sacred in the ritual because the life was in the blood. The life of the animal was sacred. And this conveyed the sacredness of of the life of all creatures. So, you know, which presents a more evolved approach, animal sacrifice or our modern meat eating? Well, you know, the rituals of Leviticus hands down convey a vastly more humane, more compassionate, more evolved approach. 
And that's just one impact of the ritual of the burnt offering, which most of us at first glance find really kind of offensive and weird when we read about it. Um, Rob Bell has a whole audio series. I think it's called um, Blood, Guts, and Fire. It's all about um, Leviticus. So I bring this up, um, the value of ritual, because as we transition from in-person worship to virtual worship back in March 2020, I don't think I'd seen Haley since March 2020. It was so good to see you, Haley, doing the doing the kids minute. Thank you in the reading. Um, ever since that, our our usual ways of worshiping have been disrupted. Like I think most of us uh, miss most the singing together. This just doesn't doesn't work on Zoom. Actually, Julia, my my uh, spouse, who's an Episcopal priest, occasionally they'll do like evening prayer and they sing all together at the same time, just almost for fun. And it, it's really strange. It's cacophonous. It's, uh, it doesn't work on Zoom with a delay. And, and we're in a crisis mode with COVID. So we found ourselves, you know, thinking back to March 2020, leaning into rituals for our virtual church more than we had before when we were meeting in person. Like we lit candles on, the, on our little altar when we were meeting in person, but you know, just before we'd start the service, someone would light the candles. But now candle lighting is a much more significant part of our service. You know, from that, that point after, after this content piece, um, like the middle third of our service, it's like one um, ritual after another the uh, lighting of the five candles, um, the naming of the lives lost to white supremacy, then uh, the naming of our, of our loved ones. If someone, you know, someone in the church has a loved one who's sick or needs special prayer, we mention them by name, by first name, uh, then followed by the time of communion that we share each week. By the way, Emily is gonna update us on the question of returning to in-person worship um, in her next, um, her next monthly update that's coming up soon. So um, while we continue our virtual worship, we'll, we'll find ways of doing uh, in-person worship. It's not, it's not actually an option yet. Our building isn't even open yet, but we're, we're thinking about it. So um, I just want to do a little bit more personal reflection on the rituals that we stumbled into here on Sunday. It's kind of like I don't know. I'm feeling like, you know, since I got vaccinated, I'm starting to like reemerge. And it's like there's light at the end of the tunnel. And when you go through a period of, of trauma or trial, you're kind of gritting your teeth. You're just getting through it. And then when you see the light at the end of the tunnel, the, the harbinger that this is not going to last forever, uh, that's when you kind of relax enough to, to look back on what your experience has been and reflect on it and that that the, the the pain of it can come up then the the sorrow of it can come up then but you also reflect on well gee what what's been different and what do i want to what do i want to change about my new normal so we're in a kind of an interesting period of of uh, reflection so i've been thinking about our our sunday rituals because i've been studying rituals in leviticus and we're at the end of the the light at the end of the tunnel phase of our of our church experience. So um, candle lighting is is super important in our 
in our Sunday rituals. Uh, the ritual lighting of candles and worship actually goes way back. I'm sure it's part of like every every religious tradition. It's certainly part of our tradition. Um, God revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush. So there's always been a connection between fire, the flame, as a, as a sign of divine presence. Uh, the holy place in the temple had a menorah. Um, it's like a, a lampstand with seven candles on a, uh, on a candlestick. It was kept, uh, kept lit at all times in the holy place of the temple by the priests. Uh, candle lighting is very important in many churches, and it's a major feature in Jewish practice and in, in families and the synagogue. Um, there's a version of the menorah in front of the Torah scroll, scroll in most uh, synagogues. Uh, the flame of the candle is a ritual expression of the divine in our midst. So the menorah, the candlestick in the holy place, is really important. It's mentioned many times in scripture, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament writings, uh, lots of references to the menorah. It's, it's featured in the last book of the Bible, the most mystical book, the apocalypse or the, the revelation. So it's like candles are, are a big deal. By the way, Caroline told me there's a midrash, um, a story about the stories in the Bible on the menorah, on the candlestick in the holy place. And it goes like this, all the tribes of Israel brought a sacrifice when the temple was first built. So, you know, the 12 tribes, each tribe would bring, bring some things to contribute. And all but the tribe of Levi, which was the tribe of the, the priests, Aaron and the, and the priests were one family in the tribe of Levi. Um, all but the tribe of Levi brought these sacrifices, these, these precious things for the construction of the temple. And the people wondered if Aaron and his tribe, the Levites, should be ashamed that they didn't bring a sacrifice. And God said, no, because when the temple is destroyed, the sacrifices will cease, but the light of the lamps of the menorah will burn forever. Ever. So candles are like the enduring um, ritual object in that, um, in that scenario. So the candle is almost always, we use it as a form of remembrance. Uh, to remember someone or something by lighting a candle is to honor them. So when it's my late wife's birthday or, or death anniversary, I light a candle that burns all day. I do the same for my parents who have passed on. It's my way of saying to my late wife and my parents, I haven't forgotten you. I, I, I still love you. Um, it's a way of reminding myself that my deceased loved ones live in God. Um, I light the candle, I go about my other tasks, and the candle being lit sort of does the remembering, the, the praying, the honoring for me through the day. You know how in, in um, Buddhist tradition, Emily has spent some time in China, and she uh, visited a lamasery, a Buddhist, um, Buddhist monastery, and a lot of Buddhist monasteries will have prayer wheels around them. Um, some you turn by hand, some, some um, turn in the wind, kind of like our, our pinwheels. And candles function like that in, in our tradition. They don't just signify a prayer, but a lit candle is a form of prayer. So I, I think of the flame as the divine spirit, the wick as the person praying, and then the rising of the heat or the smoke as the ascent of our 
prayers to the realm of the divine. Sort of what's kind of neat about um, rituals is that they're like in scripture, there's, there's definitely instructions about the proper way of doing the ritual, but the meaning of the ritual is kind of something that's uh, for each participant to connect with in their, in their own way. So there's lots of ways to experience rituals and what they mean to us. So that's, that's the benefit of rituals. Our, our modern world puts so much emphasis on words and on thinking words in our mouths, words in our minds, words on a page. A ritual may include words, but it's, it always involves uh, physical actions or objects and often both. Our, our need for prayer goes way beyond words. And there's a kind of burden to just being word, word, word oriented all the time. So mo most Sundays, I like to light my own candle. I got my, I got my candle right here. Uh, while Emily or today Caroline lights our five candles. Um, and I've noticed as the year has progressed, um, I'll, I, um, I'm more tuned into the candles than I were before. I just I stare at the candle when we're praying for various things and it kind of slows my thoughts down. I let the candle do the praying for me in a way. So the first candle, we have those five candles that uh, Caroline will be doing that soon. Uh, the first candle are for those who are sick or have died of COVID. And now we know the official figures represent maybe half the actual deaths in the, in the United States, at least from the, from the research. Uh, the reality of these deaths over the past year has certainly been weighing on our minds. I mean, you think about all the anxiety and concern about a pandemic. It's, it's represented by the fact that people die from this. Um, and isn't that a telling phrase, weighing on our minds? We use that phrase, weighing on our minds, when some painful reality just sits there, like parks in our minds, and, and it weighs on us there. So realities like this need some form of more external expression, just like when you're sad, it really helps to cry. It's, it's a way of the the thing passing through you and not just parking in you. So the candles, in a sense, help us to give an external expression to this, this horrible reality that's, that we're aware of, our minds are aware of, it's weighing on our minds anyway. It's a way of giving expression to that in the presence of God, uh, lighting a candle in remembrance. And um, we have this candle, um, for the first responders, um, I, think, I guess that's the second candle we light, the essential workers, uh, uh, nurses and doctors and others who've been bearing the brunt of this crisis. So every week by lighting the candle, we're calling them to mind, we're, we're remembering them, we're honoring them, um, we're, we're holding them in our hearts before God. Um, this past month for me, maybe for many of you, has really been a time of emergence. Uh, you know, um, seeing vaccinated people in person without masks, uh, usually outside, easy does it. I'm just getting started with this. Um, Julia had her 60th birthday and she had six of her friends over and we were inside without masks. They were all vaccinated it was like oh my gosh i hugged i hugged one of her friends i'm like you're the you're like the third person i've hugged in the past year um 
So my daughter Grace visited um, a couple of week, uh, weeks ago. I was missing for church. Grace and her uh, boyfriend Aaron were visiting from D.C. And, um, you know, we were doing all this stuff. Uh, uh, we, we went to uh, went to a deli downtown Ann Arbor. We ate outside, no masks. I mean, living large. I was really living large. Uh, later that afternoon, um, Grace says, hey, Dad, let's let's go get a beer. And I'm like, literally, where would where would we do that? How would that happen? I haven't done that. I haven't gone out to get a beer since March 2020. I'm like rusty. So we start walking uh, and I'm like, oh, I know. Let's go to York. Let's go to this place, uh, you know, like 15 minute walk from my home. You can get uh, coffee or drinks and sandwiches. It used to be my workplace in days of yore. In my previous in-person life, I'd spend hours, um, you know, working at York, meeting with people, doing sermon prep, all that stuff, emails. So I walk into York for the first time. I'm masked, you know, um, it's required here in the state of Michigan. And um, I see the owner, Tommy York, um, who I I got to know when I was uh, going to York uh, back in the day. And I just... Uh, it was weird. I felt guilty for not being there over the past year. And I just like impulsively, I apologize. I said, Tommy, I'm so sorry. I haven't been here all year. Cause it, like, it's a new, it's a new establishment. I I'm, you know, appreciating all the work he puts into making this thing work and, and getting it all organized. And um, you know, the, the, what, what small business people go through is quite, quite amazing. And as I'm, I see Tommy and I, and I just say, oh, Tommy, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I haven't been here for, I like feel guilty for not being here for the past year. He goes, Ken, what are you talking about? You know, like, like uh, we wanted you to be safe. We're glad you didn't come here. Now you can come here. You're alive. Tommy York is a social worker. So he was like super empathetic. It was so sweet. And so while I'm ordering my drink, um, my heart is like bursting with love for the people who are serving me. Um, and taking my credit card. I'm tipping like a crazy person. Um, sm- small businesses just so moved me, all the, all the ways that they've been having to adapt and survive through the pandemic. And I see all the evidence of that at this, at this place I like and adapting to new circumstances. And I realize I really haven't forgotten these people. I've been remembering them every Sunday in our candle lighting ritual. And it's like, I don't ever want to take them for granted. And I feel like the ritual of lighting the candle and remembering them has taught my body something about the importance of, of people. I think it's our fifth candle remembers those who've been killed by the reality of systemic racism. Um, right, I mean, split section, second decisions are made before someone pulls a trigger, law enforcement or whatever. And the conscious and unconscious bias that, that is so, so prevalent, promoted by racism, operates in those split-second decisions. And it, and it leads to innocent people being killed. This, this only keeps on going year after year because of the indifference of people who are not personally affected by it. So, yes, it's about time we light a candle and say the names. I don't ever want to go to a church where we can't say the names, where that is like 
controversial or too upsetting to do. God hears the cry of the afflicted. Why shouldn't we say the names in the presence of God until this scourge is passed and, and reparations are made? Reparations are another theme in Leviticus conveyed through rituals. So the ritual, the lighting of the candle, doesn't solve the problem, but it prevents us from forgetting or ignoring the problem so that we lend our hand to solving it. And then we, in our, in our sequence, um, in the middle of the service, we rem remember the names of the loved ones. We were doing this when we met in person, uh, the different ones of us um, are concerned for, and then we submit their name, and then we, we mention the name, sometimes for weeks in a row, sometimes just for a Sunday. Um, someone who's recently died, someone who's sick, someone that we're concerned about, often in our family or close friendship circle. A lot of our worry is about our loved ones, right? As someone was saying recently that like a parent is only as happy as their, as their uh, least happy child. Um, and there, there's, there's something about that. We, we can often feel very alone with the worry that we have for our family members because we're often interacting with people in the modern world who don't know our family members. So it can be an isolating thing to worry about a family member. But this ritual of um, naming the loved ones that we're concerned for is a reminder that all of us have loved ones that we're concerned for. It's a way that we can carry that burden for a moment for each other, and a shared burden is a lighter one. I counted up, uh, and I think we mention the names of over 100 people every Sunday. That's a love your neighbor as yourself ritual, the central ethic of Leviticus. And this is followed by communion, which I won't go into detail. Often the person leading communion will say something about it that conveys the meaning. I always appreciate that. But communion is the ultimate love your neighbor as yourself ritual. There's, there's a ritual connection between the people we remember with the lighting of the candles, the names that we remember of our loved ones, and then the names of this beloved one, loved one who reminds us that we worship the God who hears the cry of the afflicted. This is all conveyed to the ritual actions of communion. Through the rituals, we enact a reality that a God who hears our cry is the same God who opens our ears and our hearts to our neighbors. So these are my reflections on the rituals that we've been leaning into during our different experience of church together. So let's turn it over to Caroline and then Lorinda for some ritual action. <laughs> 